You are listening to Sermon Audio from First Baptist Church in Louise, Texas. Thank you for listening. That's our prayer, Lord. Knowing that it was finished upon that cross, that we would submit to your will, that it would not be my will that's done, but yours. Lord, that my life would be a mark of the goodness and the grace that you have bestowed on us. That we would be a light shining in the dark place because of the goodness you have lavished upon us. Father God, thank you for the grace. Thank you for the love. Thank you for the goodness that you have rained on us. Thank you for this morning. As we prepare to hear your word, Lord, as we prepare to open the scriptures and and look at Jesus on trial before Pilate, Lord, I pray, I pray, Lord, that you would be magnified, that you would be glorified, that you would illuminate the scriptures, open our hearts and our minds this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, go ahead and have a seat, guys. Last week, uh, as, as you know, we're going through the book of John, and, and we'll be finished with John in about a month, roughly a month. Um, this morning we're going to look at uh, the end of John chapter 18 and, and about half of John chapter 19. And last week we looked at the betrayal that Jesus faced uh, from Judas and from the religious leaders and, and also from his, his friend and companion, Peter. In that face of betrayal, though, Jesus stayed faithful. Why did Jesus stay faithful? Because Jesus is always faithful. This morning we're going to continue with the trial of Jesus. And where the other Gospels spend extensive time on Jesus' trial before the Jewish leaders, John doesn't. John spends very little time in front of the Jewish leaders. Rather, John is more concerned with Pilate. He's more concerned with what's happening between Jesus and Pilate, between the religious leaders and Pilate. John is concerned with the government's treatment of Jesus. And one of the things that John is trying to get across in this picture of between Jesus and Pilate is that Jesus is the long-awaited king. He is the actual ruler of the world. He is the one who will rule and reign over all creation. He is the one sent to judge and to rule. Jesus is king, but his kingdom is different than the kingdoms of the world. Pilate may seem to have power, but ultimately Jesus holds the true and mighty power. Jesus is the true king. God reigns God's reign over his creation is different in substance than humanity's reign over itself. Leaders and those in power always seek more power. They will seek more obedience from their subjects, and they will always be more subversive. They will always seek subservience. They will use lies to manipulate. They look out for their own safety and their own security rather than the people that they govern. But Jesus, as king and in his kingdom, isn't like the earthly kingdoms. He is perfect. He is just. He is seeking the good of his people. And that's the main contrast we see this morning between Jesus and Pilate. Jesus' perfect kingship against Pilate's self-seeking, self-preserving, and selfish behavior. So in these verses, John is going to compare and contrast the good and righteous and perfect King Jesus with the weak and corrupt and self-seeking Governor Pilate. And we see this at the beginning of John 18, verse 28. 
Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They did not enter the headquarters themselves, otherwise they would be defiled and unable to eat Passover. So Pilate came out to them and said, What charge do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man weren't a criminal, we wouldn't have handed him over to you. Pilate told them, You take him and judge him according to your own law. It is not legal for us to put anyone to death, the Jews declared. They said this, verse 32, so that Jesus' words might be fulfilled, indicating what kind of death he was going to die. So the Jewish leaders bring Jesus before Pilate, demanding his death. Jesus is taken before Pilate in the early morning. And this is when Pilate would make his judgments and sentences that he could carry out the rest of the day. So it was a common practice here in Jerusalem at the time. So let's just really let this sink in real quickly. Jesus had just spent the night before teaching his disciples, instructing them and preparing them for his departure. He then went to the garden to pray where he was arrested. And after his arrest, he was taken before Annas and then Caiaphas. And now in the early morning, he is standing before Pilate at the governor's headquarters. Could you imagine how exhausted Jesus would be at this point? But notice here what John says. He says the Jewish leaders wouldn't even enter into the headquarters themselves. They would not go and see Pilate. Rather, they stood outside and, and they want to see Pilate. And one thing that we're going to see is that Pilate continues to go in and out of his headquarters. It's like a scene shift that we saw last week. That, that John is, is writing this beautiful masterpiece to show the differences and the distances between two things. One thing we need to note is that the Jewish people, especially the leaders, and Pilate did not like one another. So Pilate and the Jewish leaders did not like one another. They were not on good terms. There was a lot of tension between them. There was a lot of animosity between them. But their relationship with Pilate isn't why they wouldn't enter into the headquarters. They didn't want to enter in because they didn't want to become quote-unquote unclean, especially because Passover week was at hand. They wanted to be able to participate in the festivities. You see, the Jewish people saw Gentiles as dirty, as unclean, and being in their presence in their homes would make them, them themselves unclean, so they did not want to take that risk. Because if they went in there and they were unclean, they could not partake because they would have to cleanse themselves for seven days. I don't know if you see the irony here or not, but they are willing to kill an innocent man. They are willing to have Jesus crucified. They are willing to break the law of Moses and lie about Jesus. They are willing to set up fake trials, but they aren't willing to defile themselves by entering into the, the Gentiles' headquarters. So let's get this straight. Lies, deceit, betrayal, and murder, okay. Entering into a Gentile's home is where they draw the line. Makes sense to me, I guess. I don't, I don't know. But they, they, they are so bent on murdering Jesus that they are blinded by their own sin. They are blinded by their own hatred for him. Anyway, Pilate causes some confusion among the Jewish leaders when they bring Jesus to him because he asks them this question. He says, Why, what charge do you bring against this man? He had to have already known what they were up to. He sent soldiers with them to arrest Jesus. They had already communicated their plan and purposes to him. But this is just one instance, of which there will be many, where Pilate is just antagonizing the Jewish leaders because they hated one another. And their only response is not a good response to him. They didn't have a good reason for Jesus being there. How did they respond? 
if this man weren't a criminal, we wouldn't have handed him over to you. They have no charges. They have no reasons to bring Jesus there. They just say, ah, if he wasn't a criminal, why would we bring him here? So they don't have a good reason. It, to which Pilate just tells them to deal with Jesus on their own. If you don't have a reason to bring him here, just deal with him on your own according to your own law. But here's where the rubber meets the road. They don't want to deal with him according to their own law. The punishments that they could hand out as the leaders were limited. Rome alone, meaning Pilate, alone had the power to condemn Jesus to death. And they wanted him to die. So they can't deal with him according to his own, or their own law. They want somebody else to do it for them. They want somebody else to do their dirty work for them. And they don't just want him to die. They want Jesus to be crucified. They want Jesus to be on display for the whole world to see. They want Jesus to be seen as accursed. The idea of this being accursed is by being crucified comes from Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 23, where it says, For anyone hung on a tree is under God's curse. So they want to make an example out of Jesus. And only Pilate is the one that can provide that kind of sentence. The Romans didn't invent crucifixion, but we do know that they perfected it. And throughout John's gospel, one of the things that we understand is that Jesus has shown us that the reality of the death that he's going to face is going to be that of crucifixion. That crucifixion is a way that he is going to die. And this is hinted at, not, not explicitly said, but it is hinted at in John 3.14 when Jesus says, Just as Moses lifted up a snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. Or even in John chapter 12, verse 32, As for me... If I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. So Jesus knows that the way he's going to die is going to be lifted up. He's going to be raised. And they think that the Roman crucifixion is going to bring a cursed, an, an accursed identity upon Jesus. But here's the thing. Roman crucifixion is going to bring about actually Jesus' glorification. Jesus knew that. But Pilate and the religious leaders didn't. They didn't know that the wheels were set in motion that Jesus was going to be glorified through crucifixion. But God did. And let's not forget that all the events that are taking place are under the direction and the oversight of the king of the universe. That God is in charge of what is happening here. So now Pilate has heard the accusations, and Pilate goes and talks to Jesus, starting in verse 33. Then Pilate went back into headquarters, summoned Jesus, and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Are you asking this on your own, or have others told you about me? I am not a Jew, am I? Pilate replied. Your own nation and the chief priest have handed you over to me. What have you done? My kingdom is not of this world, said Jesus. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight, so that I wouldn't be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. So Pilate is questioning Jesus. And Pilate begins by asking Jesus if he is in fact the king of the Jews. Jesus knows that Pilate doesn't have a dog in this fight. He knows that Pilate is simply a toy being manipulated by the religious leaders. And that's why his response is a little harsh to Pilate. Are you asking or has somebody told you about me? Because Pilate doesn't really know the situation. Pilate is confused and a little befuddled by the predicament that he's in. The religious leaders have handed Jesus over to the Roman government. 
And this is pretty unusual because the Jewish people hate the Roman government. They would rarely hand over one of their own. And so Pilate looks at Jesus and says, what have you done that your own would turn their back on you? What have you done that your own would betray you? Why do they hate you so much? But Jesus doesn't answer that question, does he? He finally answers the first question. Are you the king of the Jews? And the the way that Jesus responds to this is, my kingdom is not of this world. Jesus, though living in the world, did not belong to the world. His mission and kingdom involved the world. That's why he's here, but he was sent to accomplish something bigger than just an earthly kingdom. Remember, the Jewish people, they were looking for a Messiah that was going to raise up Jerusalem and set an earthly kingdom. Their understanding of the Messiah was that he would come to set them free from the captive and the bondage of their overlords. That he would establish an earthly kingdom. But Jesus is saying here that his kingdom is not of the earth. Because if it was of the earth, then his followers would have fought. Or fought. His followers would have allowed him to be, wouldn't have allowed him to be captured. But as it were, Jesus, Jesus' kingdom is different separated, distinct from the kingdoms of the earth. Let's not lose the irony of what Jesus is saying to Pilate. Jesus is face to face with a Roman governor who has a part in one of the largest empires that has ever existed on the earth. The Roman Empire is one of the largest empires that ever existed, and he's looking at them and going, my kingdom is not like your kingdom. My kingdom is not bound by earth. Jesus isn't interested in ruling the earth like an earthly king. Now, why is that? Because the reality is, he already owns the whole earth. He already owns everything. John tells us this in John chapter 1, verse 3. He says, all things were created through him. And apart from him was not one thing that was created that had been created. The reason why Jesus owns the earth is because Jesus is the one that spoke the earth into existence. Jesus is not interested in an earthly kingdom he is interested in a spiritual restoration a spiritual kingdom a kingdom of brothers and sisters coming together and living a life that is different than the earthly kingdom because the reality is earthly kingdoms come and earthly kingdoms go they peak and they fade but god's kingdom is an eternal kingdom because god's kingdom is spiritual so jesus does have a kingdom but it's not from around here Now, Pilate responds to Jesus because Pilate's still a little confused. And he says in verse 37, You are a king then, Pilate asked. You say that I'm a king, Jesus replied. I was born for this, and I have come into the world for this, to testify to the truth. Whoever is of the truth listens to my voice. Verse 38, What is truth? said Pilate. So the questioning of Jesus continues. Pilate is still looking for answers, but Jesus is still somewhat has been cryptic about his responses, and yet here he clarifies he is a king, but he's a different kind of king. He has a different nature. He has a different purpose, and his kingdom is going to be to testify to the truth. John's gospel focuses a lot on truth. I mean, even in John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus tells him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. For Jesus and his followers, truth isn't just some facts to know. It's not just knowledge to gain. Truth is more than just intellectual 
Truth is a way of life. Truth is a person to follow. Jesus' kingdom is built upon the truth of who he is. God's revelation of himself to people who would trust him. So in order to live in truth, we have to live in relationship with Jesus. When we follow Jesus, we integrate the truth into our everyday life, meaning that we live with integrity. We speak in honesty. We live a life honoring God's goodness and his grace towards us. This is the reason that Jesus was born. That This is the reason he was sent into this world to reveal the truth of God to us. That's what John tells us in verse 14 of chapter 1. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his glory, the glory as the one and only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And in John 4, when Jesus is speaking to the woman at the well, he says this in verse 24, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. God's kingdom is built on the truth the truth of who Jesus is. So think about it this way. The kingdom that Jesus rules is based upon who he is. It's based upon and around his life, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. It is built upon what he taught and how he lived. Jesus is the foundation of the kingdom. He isn't just the king. He is the foundation of the kingdom, and he rules and reigns in truth. And those that accept him accept the truth. They are part of that kingdom. And this means that we are to live and imitate Jesus. We are to live lives that represent the kingdom of truth. We are to look like Jesus wherever we go. We are to act like Jesus in whatever we do. That is, we are living in the truth of Jesus, belonging to the kingdom of God, never compromising. You see, understand this. Having a relationship with Jesus is not just about getting out of heaven and then doing whatever you want to do. It's about living a life overwhelmed and influenced by the truth of Jesus. Being a follower of Jesus changes our desires. It changes our behaviors. It changes our decisions. He leads us into truth that we are the broken sinners in need of a gracious Savior. He reveals the truth to us that it's not about me. It's about bringing glory to Him. And when He leads us into that truth, our, our desires change and we are shaped into His image. And following Jesus means that we are living more in the truth of who he is. When he leads us into that truth, he desires that we live there. But much like Pilate, many of us ask the question, we look at Jesus and we say, what is truth? What is truth? That's a question the culture around us asks every day. What is truth? Jesus is truth. He is the way. He is the way to truth. Truth is not relative. Truth is not subjective. Truth isn't a social or theological construct. Truth is a person. And his name is Jesus. Don't miss this. One of the most popular things floating around in our culture is the idea of, quote-unquote, living my truth. And that sounds good. It makes us feel right. But what if your truth is a lie? If we're honest with ourselves... When we use that phrase, my truth, many of the times we are using it to defend our sinful behaviors. We are using it as a shield to bypass correction. If your truth contradicts what Jesus reveals, then your truth is a whole lie. 
If you want to know what is truth, if you want to know what the truth is, you look to Jesus. You walk in his kingdom. You follow after him. So if the question is, what is truth? The answer is Jesus. Verse 38. After he had said this, he went out to the Jews again and told them, I find no grounds for charging him. You have a custom that I release one prisoner to you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They shouted back, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a revolutionary. After the initial questioning of Jesus, Pilate comes back out to the religious leaders. And for the first time he says this to them, I have no reason to keep Jesus. I find no guilt in him. He's not guilty of anything. But rather than simply releasing Jesus, he gives the Jewish people an opportunity. He, he gives them an opportunity to make their own choice. There was a custom that Pilate had and that they had in the time that they would release one of the Jewish captives back to the Jewish people around Passover time. So he gives them a choice here. He brings forth two men, Jesus and a man named Barabbas. Now John doesn't tell us a whole lot about Barabbas. If you want to know about Barabbas a little bit more, you can go back to the other Gospels and they cover him a little bit more. But they don't want to release Jesus. They want to release Barabbas. And depending on your translation, it will tell you that Barabbas was a revolutionary, a robber, he was a rebel, or he had taken part in a uprising. Now the reality is, the point is, that Barabbas is a bad dude. He was a troublemaker. He was what we would call a terrorist. He was exactly what the Jewish leaders were accusing Jesus of being. He was a terrorist. They thought Jesus was a terrorist because he was uprooting and changing the way that they taught. He was changing the way that, they, that, that the Jewish religion was viewed. They said Jesus was a terrorist, but in reality, Barabbas was. Barabbas was bent on causing chaos. And in Mark chapter 15, we are also told that Barabbas is a murderer. So instead of releasing Jesus, the men decide that a murdering revolutionary terrorist was safer in their midst that he was safer in their midst than a healing and compassionate preacher. Makes sense. Pilate was trying to change their minds, but the people, when they were presented with the two options, did not change their mind. So what does Pilate do next? What can he do? He offered to, to give Jesus over to them, but he, they didn't want him. So in verse 1 of chapter 19, it says this, Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers also twisted together a crown of thorns, put it on his head, and clothed him with a purple robe. And they kept coming up to him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they were slapping his face. What we see in these short, few short verses is the mockery of a king. So since Pilate, they wouldn't release Jesus, Pilate had him flogged. Now there were three types of beatings that the Romans handed over as punishment. There was a light beating, like a slap on the wrist, and there was a medium beating, and there was a, another beating that was closer to the death, to beating somebody to death. The last and the most severe beating would be given to someone who was about to be crucified to help make their death a little more expedient. However, most scholars believe here that the beating recorded is not the extremely severe one. This was a simple flogging meant to, meant to teach Jesus a lesson and appease the Jewish leaders in hopes that they would release him after the flogging. Meaning that 
after they had finally convinced Peter to, or Pilate to crucify Jesus, he would receive another beating that was more severe and would hinder his ability to carry his cross on his own. So if we're, if we're outlining John's gospel, he probably, Jesus probably received more than one beating. He had two, one here and one before the cross. Yet that's not the point of these verses. The point here is that Jesus is mocked for being the king of the Jews. Most of us have heard the story or seen the pictures of a crown of thorns on Jesus' head. And most of the time when we look at those thorns, they usually look like rosebush thorns, right? Little bitty thorns. But the thorns on these bushes would have, or on this crown would have been from a date tree. And those thorns get up to 12 inches long, a foot long. Now that same tree was the tree that people waved the palm branches for as Jesus entered into the city. So the same tree that welcomed Jesus into Jerusalem as the king is the tree that was mocked at the ha- used to mock him at the hands of the Romans. They dressed him in a robe. The robe was purple and a, si- a signal of royalty. And they mocked him. They slapped him in the face. They spit on him. They said, Hail, King of the Jews, in a mocking manner. You see, the Lord of all creation, the King of the universe, was being mocked. He was being ridiculed. He was being beaten at the hands of his creation. Imagine God forming and fashioning these men in the wombs of their mothers, knowing that one day he would face them, that we would beat him. But Jesus, being king, being sovereign over all, has taken that beating. And Pilate, in verses 4 through 8, this is what happens. Pilate went outside again and said to them, Look, I am bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no grounds to charge, for charging him. Then Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and a purple robe. And Pilate said to him, to them, Here is the man. When the chief priest and the, and the temple servants saw him, they shouted, Crucify! Crucify. Pilate responded, Take him and crucify him yourselves, since I find no grounds of char- for charging him. We have a law, the Jews replied to him. And according to the law, he ought to die, because he made himself the Son of God. And when Pilate heard that statement, he was more afraid than ever. So after Jesus was beaten, Pilate brings him before the Jewish leadership. And he presents Jesus, mockingly dressed up as a king bloody and beaten and he asks them or tells them i find no grounds i found no grounds for keeping this man Pilate has no backbone he has all the power and he has all the influence to release jesus and he doesn't and he doesn't because he doesn't want to upset the jewish leadership more than they already hate him he was tasked with keeping the peace in Jerusalem, and he believed that if he released Jesus, it would cause an uproar. For the second time, Pilate confesses to the Jewish leaders that Jesus is innocent. There is no reason to continue this trial, and there is no reason for Jesus to be here. And at the same time that he says there's no reason for Jesus to be on trial, he is admitting that Jesus was beaten as a guiltless son of God to appease the crowd. Then Pilate proclaims this. He says, this is the man. 
He means to claim that the man that they view as such a threat has been subdued. He isn't a threat to them anymore. He has learned his lesson. But what Pilate doesn't realize is the theological impact that these words have. This is the man. Because Jesus is the perfect man, the unstained man. He is God in the flesh that came to redeem his people through the shedding of his blood. Even in John chapter 1, verse 14, it said, The word became flesh and dwelt among them. Jesus is the second Adam come to set the world right. 1 Corinthians 15.22 For just as in Adam all die, so also in Christ we will all be made alive. You see, Jesus dawned on flesh to show us the ideal way to be human. He is the man. The man that we are meant to be. The man that humanity was meant to be without the stain of sin and selfishness. And here he stands, beaten, bloody, and bruised, mocked before the people. The response Pilate expected was one of pity, that at the sight of Jesus, the Jews would back down with the blood running down his face and the crown of thorns on his head, that they would say, no, go ahead and and release him. But instead of saying, release him, they double down, crucify, crucify, kill him. And for the third time, Pilate tells them that they have no grounds for Jesus to be found guilty. So Pilate tells them to crucify them themselves, knowing that they didn't have the means or authority to do so. Pilate here is showing no personal responsibility. Rather, he is playing a political game when it comes to the life of Jesus. We see this in the other Gospels when he washes his hands of the situation. He does not want to be the one responsible for Jesus' death, yet he doesn't want to release Jesus because he wants to garner favor with the Jewish people. He is every bit a politician. The crowd then tells Pilate to go crucify Jesus because he had made himself to be the Son of God. And this terrifies Pilate. And he goes back inside and he questions Jesus a little bit more. The question is, why would it terrify Pilate? But we'll get into that in just a second. So verse 9, it says this, He went back into the headquarters and asked Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus did not give him an answer. So Pilate said to him, Do you refuse to speak to me? Don't you know that I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? Verse 11, You would have no authority over me at all, Jesus answered him, if it had not been given to you from above. This is why the one who handed me over has a greater sin. Right here we see the true authority. You see, Pilate was a superstitious man. He believed that Jesus could have been some sort of divine man that had come down. Pilate, no doubt, being raised in the Roman world, would have heard stories about God-men coming down from the Roman pantheon dwelling with humans. And he was afraid that Jesus could have been one of these God-men. Pilate feared that because Jesus may have been a divine man, that there were going to be repercussions for his actions. The reality is he didn't realize that he was the God of the universe, not the God of some Roman pantheon. So he asked Jesus, where are you from? Pilate was looking for reasoning. He was looking for answers. He wanted to know what to do. How could he fix the problem? How could he remedy the situation that he finds himself in? But Jesus doesn't give him an answer. Jesus doesn't satisfy him with answering the question. Jesus just remains silent knowing that the answer wouldn't fix anything. The answer wouldn't change Pilate's position. Pilate was still maneuvering and making political play out of Jesus' life. And that is evidenced by how Pilate responds to Jesus' silence. 
Do you refuse to speak to me? Don't you know that I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? You see, Pilate here is flexing his authority. He wanted Jesus to know that he had the power and the right to free him or to crucify him. But if that were true, then why didn't he, in one of the three times previously that he said there's no reason to condemn this man, release him? If Pilate was actually in control of the situation, he should have let Jesus go. He should have freed Jesus. But the reality is Pilate's not in control. He was simply playing the part he needed to play in order to accomplish what God was using him to accomplish. And Jesus says as much in verse 11, You would have no authority over me at all if it hadn't been given you from above. This is something that we should never forget, that we should never neglect. God is working all things out for his glory. He is putting all things in place to tell his story, to reveal the truth of who he is. Pilate only had power and influence because God had granted it to him. Any authority that Pilate had was a derivative authority, meaning that it derived from God's plan and God's purpose. Just like we saw last week, Jesus is and will remain in complete control of every situation up until his last breath. And then in his resurrection. And then he is raised to sit at the, the right hand of the Father. Jesus is always in control. Any and all authority given to any leader or any governmental official is only given to them and granted to them by God. I think that the reality is, is that we look at the governments around the world and we, we go, oh my goodness, they're out of control. God, where are you? I think Psalm chapter 2 verse 4 really puts a pointed understanding it basically says that as the people and the nation, nations rage against God here on the earth, the one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord ridicules them because he knows who's in control. He knows who has the power. God is sovereign. He is never out of control and he has never taken off guard. Verse 12. From that moment, Pilate kept trying to release him. But the Jews shouted, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Anyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus outside. He sat down on the judge's seat in a place called the Stone Pavement, or in Aramaic, Gabbatha. It was the preparation day for the Passover. It was about noon. And he told the Jews, here is your king. They shouted, take him away. Take him away. Crucify him. Pilate said to them, Should I crucify your king? We have no king but Caesar, the chief priest answered. Then handed him over. Then he handed him over to be crucified. Then they took Jesus away. We see here is judgment. Pilate really wants no part to play in the trial of Jesus. He's looking for an out. He wants to demiss Jesus. And that's why it says, From that moment, Jesus or Pilate kept trying to release, release him. However, the religious authorities had a trump card in their back pocket. They knew that when all else fails, all they have to do was invoke the name of Caesar to push Pilate into their favor. One of the things Pilate didn't want to be was on the bad side of Caesar. If that happened, he could lose his power. If that happened, he could lose his authority or his influence. And depending on how, how Caesar was feeling, feeling that day, Pilate would be executed for going against uh, Caesar. 
Fearing the only man that Pilate feared, he decided to bring judgment on Jesus. And they went to a place called the Stone Pavement. This was a raised platform out in the public arena where the governor at the time would make a decision and declarations so that people would know what was happening. Pilate is about to give his judgment to Jesus. Not because Jesus was guilty, but because Pilate was weak. Pilate was scared. Pilate was intimidated by the crowd. Pilate presents Jesus to the crowd and he says, this is your king. Here again, mocking and taunting the Jewish people and Jesus to some extent, but he was also speaking the truth. Jesus was their king. Jesus wasn't the king that they wanted. Jesus wasn't the savior that they wanted. He wasn't going to establish an earthly kingdom. He wasn't going to free Israel. He's going to establish his own kingdom. He's going to make his own name known. He's going to save us from our greatest foe, which was not Rome, but our sin. But the sin in our hearts is what Jesus came to save, to redeem, to save us from. And so what do they do? They say, crucify him. We have no king but Caesar. And that phrase, we have no king but Caesar, is the Jewish people turning their backs on God. He was supposed to be their king. God was supposed to be their king. He was supposed to be the one to rule over them. And these blasphemous words from the chief priest are removing God's kingship from Israel. This is very reminiscent of the Israelites crying out for a king in 1 Samuel chapter 8, or yeah, 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 7. But the Lord told them, listen to the people and, re- and everything they say to you. They, have rejected you. they haven't rejected you, they have rejected me as their king. When they cry out, we have no king but Caesar, they are turning their backs on God. At this time, the religious leaders didn't care what they had to claim to give up Jesus. They simply wanted him dead. Their hatred towards Jesus is palatable. Whatever it took, they wanted him dead. So Pilate hands him over to be crucified. So what do we take away from this passage? First, I want us to know that if we belong to Jesus, we have to understand that the kingdom that we belong to is not of this world. We are called to live and to proclaim the truth of Jesus at all times and in all places. We are called to pursue Jesus and to pursue holiness no matter what the cost. And as representatives of his kingdom, we are to pursue the truth of Jesus. The second thing I want us to know is that Jesus is sovereign. God's ultimate goal in all that happens in this world is to make his glory known. There is nothing that happens in this world that is outside of God's control. There is nothing that happens in our lives that isn't overseen by God. And we need to trust that regardless of what goes on in our lives, God is going to get the praise. He's going to receive the honor. He is going to be glorified. God is all about his own glory because his own glory is good, perfect, and holy. Therefore, we should also be about his glory. The last thing I want us to take away from this is that Jesus loves you. That Jesus cares about you. He cares about you so much that he came to die for you. He suffered at the hands of evil men so that you could come to know him. That he wants you to be a part of his kingdom. That he wants you to see him and know him for as he truly is. So if you haven't given your life over to them, him today, give your heart to him. He's calling out to you. Will you answer him? Let's pray. Father God, thank you. Thank you for grace. But also, Father, thank you for truth. Thank you for the life that you called us to. 
the love that you have shown us. Lord, thank you for redemption. Thank you for salvation. Thank you for your sovereignty. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone who's struggling with that today, Lord, I pray that they would just give it over to you. Lord, they would see your goodness, that they would see your glory in all that they say, all that they think, and all that they do. And as we sing these last couple of songs, Lord, may you be magnified. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. To find out more information about our church and ministries, visit fbclouise.com. Thank you.